free to continue to eat. I want to get started because I have so much material for us here this evening. Uh, tonight, notice the title is we're going to learn how to contend for the faith Sproul style. This message is kind of in honor of R.C. Sproul. For those of you that don't know, he did pass away on December 14, 2017 from complications with the flu. I know he had COPD with his lungs. And so for those of you unfamiliar with R.C. Sproul, he was a very famous pastor, theologian, and apologist. He put out a lot of work. And I have to say, I was never even in the same room with Dr. R.C. Sproul. I was never probably within a state of him. And yet, he was probably the most influential theologian in my own life. And, you know, and also, he influenced my apologetics. Uh, the only theologian that's, I think, influenced me more is our own Bob DeWay. And so I know, uh, yeah, amen. Bob um, and I both think very highly of R.C. Sproul. Now, as I say that, we had some theological differences with R.C. in areas of ecclesiology and eschatology. But when it came to the central doctrines of the faith, when it came to the doctrines of grace, when it came to apologetics, R.C. Sproul was a first-rate theologian and a first-rate mind. And so today, as we look at his material, what I really want to focus on tonight is how do we know what we know? We're going to be looking at epistemology, the study of knowledge. We're going to be looking at how do we know the scriptures, how do we know God through both natural and also special revelation. Now, as we look at our apologetics task, I want to assure you apologetics has nothing to do with apologizing for what we believe. It has to do with giving a rational defense. And I want you to realize that this rational defense that we are called to give does not stem from any mere mortal like R.C., but it comes from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. In fact, if you will, please begin by turning your Bibles to 1 Peter 3, verses 14 through 15. Of course, most of you are familiar with 1 Peter 3:15, but we'll look at one verse earlier to set the context. Here we see a command from the apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ that we are to give a rational defense. 1 Peter 3, verse 14, I'll start there. Notice Peter says, But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear, this is a quotation, by the way, from Isaiah chapter 8, and do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. Now let me just stop there in verse 14, because verse 14 helps us to understand what Peter's saying in verse 15. Remember, as Peter was penning the epistle to those Christians in Asia Minor, they were suffering because the pagans were persecuting them. And not only were their pagans, maybe their neighbors, their co-workers, etc., but you also had even governors. You had the governors from Rome that would persecute them. You even had the emperor himself that would go after Christians. And so the issue in Asia Minor was who did you really fear? If you feared what man or woman could do to you on this earth, you would start to depart from Christianity. But if you feared the Lord alone, then you would stay faithful to the faith. And so that's why he says in verse 15, notice he says, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Now stop there for just a moment. What does it mean to sanctify the Lord in our hearts? Well, the term sanctify in Greek, hagiazo, means to just simply set him apart. To simply set him apart as Lord, meaning Jesus is the only Lord and there's no other. Why is that important? Because you will end up trying to please the one you deem to be Lord. 
If you deem some man or woman to be Lord, you'll try to please them. But if Jesus alone is Lord, you'll seek to please him alone. So that's the first task in apologetics is realizing the one that we serve, the one that we fear is the Lord Jesus alone. Now, right after that, notice he says, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Now, does everyone see the term defense? Your other English versions might say it differently, but that's where we get our term apologetics. It comes from the Greek term apologia. And apologia, again, does not have to do with apologizing for what we believe as if we're saying we're sorry, but it literally in antiquity had to do with giving a rational defense in a courtroom. So every single Christian has an obligation before Christ to be ready to give a rational defense for what we believe. We have to give a rational defense as to why Jesus Christ is the Lord of all, why he's the only way of salvation, why his scriptures are inerrant. That's what we're called to do. So I just wanted you to realize that at the outset here, our apologetic task is not one in which R.C. Sproul alone told us to engage in or Bob DeWay or some other good theologian, but it's the Lord himself who told us to do it. Now, as I look at our task of apologetics, one thing we have to define is what type of apologetics are to engage in. You probably notice that your Bible doesn't tell you how to do apologetics. It simply tells you to do that. Well, over Christian history throughout time, there's been primarily three different camps in epistemology. And I just want to lay these out for you. The first camp is classical apologists. That's what R.C. Sproul was. Now, classical apologists believe in giving evidence to prove the existence of God, and then they give evidence to prove that the God who exists is the God of the Bible. Okay? Then there's what's called evidentialists. Evidentialists believe also supplying an evidence, but they believe in a different starting point. They typically want to start with giving evidence of the truth of scriptures rather than proving the existence of God. But here's what I want you to understand. Both classical apologists and evidentialists believe in supplying evidence to prove the truth claims of Christianity and to refute all other claims. Now, the final camp is something called presuppositionalism. And we'll be taking that apart a little bit today. Presuppositionalists don't believe that you should give evidence, okay? In fact, I want to show you our definitions here. Classical apologetics. Now, remember, I gave you three definitions. I'm lumping lumping evidentialists with classical apologists because they both believe in giving evidence. R.C. Sproul was a classical apologist. Uh, Augustine, Anselm, Aquinas, B.B. Warfield, John Gerstner, R.C. Sproul, William Lane Craig, J.P. Moreland, Norman Geisler, our own Bob DeWay, uh, is a classical apologist. Now, classical apologists, again, believe in using evidence and logic to deduce the existence of God. Further evidence is then given to prove the God of the Bible. Okay, so first you prove that God exists. Then you say, well, what kind of God is it that exists? Well, it's the God of the Bible. That's how classical apologists reason. Now, this has been fought against, really in the last 150 years, I think more fiercely, by people who call themselves presuppositionalists. Now, let me just list some names of presuppositional apologists. Cornelius Van Til. Has everyone heard of that name? Cornelius Van Til, a very famous Dutch theologian, 20th century, had a big impact 
in American reform circles. He is the leading proponent of propositional apologetics. Uh, Carl Henry, Greg Bonson, John Frame, Gordon Clark, these are just some examples. Now, what do presuppositionalists believe? Again, they say one must start with the presupposition that God exists to have any knowledge at all. Now, the reason I want to introduce this to you is because I know Bob and I have come across this in our own walk. And the interesting thing is when we have done apologetics work, I know for my own case, I've had more pushback, not from the outside world, but from presuppositionalists who will tell me I ought not to engage in giving that kind of evidence. Now, typically they will not go so far as to say that I'm sinning, but I certainly am in their way of thinking, acting in a way that's unbecoming a Christian by giving evidence. And so there is a divide, and I want you to be aware of that. People that we dearly love in evangelicalism would reject classical apologetics, but I'm going to show you tonight they ought not to. I think we have to learn from R.C. Sproul that indeed classical apologetics is the apologetics model that we should use. Ultimately, why? Well, let me show you a quote from R.C. Sproul. By the way, this comes from a great book that he had written in the 1980s called Classical Apologetics. In it, not only does he prove the truth claims of Christianity, but he also gives a powerful refutation of preposi- excuse me, presuppositional apologetics. So it's a very good work. And by the way, I've got a ton of works of his up here. Uh, well, not a ton of them. I got four. That's all I could fit in my bag. That's all that Will could carry for me. But I'll be, I'll be showing you them throughout the night. And if you have questions or want to read them, I highly encourage you to. Ask me at the end of the night, and I'll show you what they are. But here's what R.C. Sproul said regarding presuppositional apologetics. He said, The implications of presuppositionalism, in our opinion, undermine the Christian religion implicitly, unquote. Now, as R.C. said that, and Bob and I would affirm this, R.C. was not claiming, I'm not claiming, Bob's not claiming, that those who hold to presuppositional apologetics don't love Christ. We're not claiming that somehow they're less than believers. But what we're claiming is the irony is the holding their position actually refutes the very claims that they want to prove, namely the, the claims of Christ. So that's the problem. So what is the problem with presuppositionalism? Well, at the end of the day, it leads to what's called circular reasoning. Has anybody in here heard of begging the question? Begging the question is synonymous with circular reasoning. Let me give you an example. Let's say I said to you, I believe the Bible's true. Well, then you ask me the question, how do I know that the Bible's true? Well, what if I gave you the evidence in my premise that I believe the Bible's true because the Bible says it's true? Notice that I've merely asserted my conclusion into my supporting premise, and I've added nothing to the argument. I've engaged in circular reasoning. It'd be like if my little boy says, Dad, why does the sky look blue? And he said, son, because it's blue. I haven't added anything to the discussion at all. I've merely engaged in circular reasoning. And dear ones, that is precisely the problem with presuppositional apologetics. It ends up begging the question, engaging in something that I'll define later called fideism. Anytime you have an ism, it's bad, right? Fideism, uh, by the way, fide is the Latin term for faith. We want to have faith, but fideism is faithism, where you don't have any evidence for what you believe. You just take a blind leap into the dark. Well, guess what? If you and I take a blind leap into the dark to believe in Christ, a Mormon can do that. 
A Muslim can do that. A Hindu can take a blind leap of the faith. What you and I are saying is, no, there's actually evidence for what we believe. So when we start to consider classical apologetics versus presuppositional apologetics, I want you to understand that the fundamental debate is a difference in the starting point for how we have knowledge. Okay? Now, let me just show you where we begin as classical apologists. We believe that you begin with yourself. The way that you can know God and his world begins with you. Now, the presuppositionalist will say that no, it actually begins with God. And doesn't it sound much more pious and much more holy to say, yes, knowledge of God and his world begins with God rather than us? In fact, that's what presuppositionalists will use to beat us classical apologists over the head and say, oh, you sinners, you want to begin the task of knowing God and his world with yourself? We are the pious as presuppositionalists. We begin with God. Okay? So that seems like a very weighty argument, but here's what I want you to realize. I want you to realize that when we talk about the starting point for knowledge, we are not talking about an ontological starting point. Now, let me stop there. Don't glaze over. Does everyone see that big word, ontological? That's simply a word that means existence. We're not talking about the starting point for the existence of knowledge. We as classical apologists would say, yes, after all, if God didn't create all things, nothing would exist. So we're not talking about the existence of knowledge, the starting point of it in that sense, but we are talking about an epistemological starting point. Epistemological means how do you know what you know? So let me explain. How many here, when you woke up this morning, had complete omniscience and knew the entire world and God as it truly is and as he is? Well, I don't think any of us would claim that. Why? By the way, it's not your fault. I didn't either. Because we're stuck in the skin we're in. You and I cannot stand in God's shoes and know all things. And so we have as a starting point to know God and his world, ourselves in logic and reason. That's what we have to use. Let me illustrate this through a story that R.C. Sproul once told. He said, think of a family. They're traveling from the southeastern United States. And they want to go up and see Mount Rushmore, which is in South Dakota. Well, let's say, and Bob will like this, they got lost in Iowa. Bob's originally from Iowa. Well, they get lost in Iowa. They, they pull over at a farmer's uh, house, and they're asked directions. How do we get to Mount Rushmore? And the farmer comes up to them and looks at their map, and he says, well, if you want to get to Mount Rushmore, you shouldn't start from here. Now, if someone told you, just think you're the dad, you're driving the car, or the mom, and someone says, well, you shouldn't start from here, what are you going to say? That's the only place I've got to start. That's why you and I, to start to know God and his world, have to start with ourselves, because it's the only place we have to start. So, dear ones, what I'm submitting to you is this. What R.C. Sproul, what Bob DeWay, what I have to say to you tonight is that the only way that we can know the Bible, that we can know God, is that we use the laws of logic. God created us rational beings in his image, and without, for example, the law of non-contradiction, we can't distinguish between God, the creator, and the creation. We can't distinguish between Christ and Antichrist. Without the law of non-contradiction, we can't learn anything. We can't stop at red lights and go at green lights. 
without the law of non-contradiction, you'd try to walk through the wall just as soon as you try to walk through the door. You couldn't distinguish between any category. So the starting point for knowledge may seem pious to say it's God, but the starting point is actually with ourselves, that we have to reach out and know other things through our sense perceptions and through our rational ability, including the scriptures in God's world. So that's one of the big divides between classical and presuppositionalist. Now, one thing the presuppositionalists will claim of R.C. Sproul and other classical apologists is that we are rationalists. They'll say, ah, you classical apologists, you want to start with your own autonomous reason and reason your way to God. Well, again, let me refute that. I, as a classical apologist, am not a rationalist, but I am rational. Remember, anytime you have an ist or an ism, it's typically bad, right? Well, let me explain what rationalism is and I'll explain why we are not that. Rationalism is the belief that we can know all things unaided by God's revelation. A good example of this would be Benedict Spinoza. How many of here have ever heard of Benedict Spinoza? Well, he was a very famous philosopher. He was originally called Baruch. He was actually a Jewish fellow. He died very young, by the way, of a lung disease, of kind of like R.C. Sproul. But he was not a good man. He was a pantheist. And what Benedict Spinoza taught was rationalism. What he believed is that he could go into a corner unaided by God's revelation and reason to all truth. And isn't it interesting, the truth that he reasoned to was that everything was God. He was one of the first pantheists outside of the Eastern world. He was a, a pan, into pantheism, just like we have in the emerging church today. So rationalism says that we can sit in a corner as human beings and come to all truth unaided by God's revelation. That's not what classical apologists are saying. What we are saying is that we are rational, that we can know true things about God and his universe because of God's gracious self-disclosure. Now, how did God disclose himself? Well, notice he did it through natural revelation. That's what we can know about God and his world looking out the window. We also know, of course, God even more fully through his special revelation through his word. And so those are the two categories that we have to understand that God disclosed himself. And so we are reliant upon that self-disclosure to understand who he is. Think about natural revelation. Remember, the word of God itself says that you can know true things about God through the created order. Uh, Psalm 19.1, David wrote that the heavens declare the glory of God. The day after day, they pour forth speech. The special revelation, why is that important? Well, Romans 10.17 says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by what? The birds in the tree? No, it's by the words of Christ. So salvation ultimately only comes through special revelation. So here's the point. When the presuppositionalist says we as classical apologists are merely engaged in rationalism, you have to realize that we are rational, but we are not into rationalism. All right? Now, let me just show you a big dilemma of presuppositionalism. And this is, I think, illustrates why it's so dangerous to fall into that camp, in my humble opinion. Presuppositionalism claims that unbelievers cannot have true knowledge of God. In fact, let me read to you Cornelius Van Til. Van Til, the leading proponent of this type of apologetics, said this. He says, quote, What is meant by knowing God in Scripture is knowing and loving God. 
This is true knowledge of God. The other is false. Now stop there for a moment. Notice what Bantil is saying is that if you love God, you're obviously a believer, and that's true knowledge. But notice the only other knowledge that's available to the unbeliever is false knowledge or no knowledge at all. So he's claiming that if you are an unbeliever, if you don't have the presupposition that Jesus Christ is Lord, Van Til, the presuppositionalist, is saying you can't have any knowledge of God. Now, he doubles down. Listen, this comes from his book, In Defense of the Faith, page 73. He says, quote, There is on this basis no genuine point of contact with the mind of the natural man at all. The revelation of a self-sufficient God can have no meaning for a mind that think of itself as ultimately autonomous, unquote. So again, the big point, dear ones, is the presuppositionalist says that only those who presuppose the God of the Bible can have true knowledge. Now, what I'm going to show you is by asserting that the presuppositionalist is in a dilemma. And in logic debate, when you have a dilemma, you have only two bad options to choose from. Are you with me? So let me show you the first bad option they have to choose from. Again, their claim is that unbelievers have no knowledge of God, but the Bible declares that they do. Okay, now where does the Bible say that? Well, turn your Bibles to Romans 1, 20 through 21. I'm going to show you that the scriptures themselves declare that, yes, even unbelievers through the creation have some true knowledge of God. Now, the problem in Romans chapter 1 as we see, for example, in Romans 1.18, is that these unbelievers take the truth about God and they suppress it in unrighteousness. They don't like what the evidence suggests. So it's not that they can't perceive and understand things about who God is from the creation. It's that they do understand it and they don't like it. Just as Jesus said in John 3.19, that when the light came into the world, men loved their deeds of darkness. They fled from it. Okay, that's the issue, and that's exactly what Paul is saying here in Romans 1, 20 through 21. Let me read verse 20 first. Paul says, For since the creation of the world, his, that's of course God's, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. Does everyone see that? Stop there in verse 20. Notice the claim that the unregenerate has understood things about God, namely his divine nature. So they have understanding. And notice in verse 21, it says, for even though they knew God, let me say it again, they knew God, let me say it again, they knew God. Even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Now, dear ones, does everyone see verse 20, the term understood? That comes from noeo. Okay, it has to do with our intellect. Everyone's heard probably the noetic effects of sin, how sin affects your mind. It does. But that's the term, so there really is an understanding of God. Notice the term for new in verse 21 when it says they knew God. That's gnosko. It's simply they have knowledge. So notice here, the scriptures themselves refute Van Til and do say that, yes, even unbelievers have some true knowledge of God. Now, do they act on it? No. Do they suppress it? Oh, yes, they do. So this is one option that isn't valid. Right away, if the presuppositionalist holds to this position, they're wrong. Why? Because they're contradicting the Scriptures. 
Now, the only other option available to them, logically, is that unbelievers do have knowledge. But unbelievers don't presuppose God. So here's the power of this dilemma that they're in. Think about it, dear brothers and sisters. If the presuppositionalist holds to this position, they deny the scriptures. But if they hold to this position, they deny their own position. So either they're trying to refute the scriptures or themselves. That's not a very good argument. When you either have to say the scriptures are wrong or I'm wrong, that's not a great dilemma to be in. But yet that's exactly the dilemma the presuppositionalist is in. Why am I laboring this point? Because you're going to go out into the world and you're going to give evidence for who Christ is. And at some point you're going to come across a Christian who says, you ought not to be doing that. And you'll find out that they're a presuppositionalist. All right? I pray that that doesn't happen, but it can and it has. I know Bob has gotten pushed back in his career. I have from well-meaning presuppositionalists. But yet they fall on this dilemma. Okay? Now, we have to look at the problem of fideism. Ultimately, what presuppositionalism leads to is fideism. What is fideism? How many in here have ever heard of sola fide? Anyone ever heard that? Salvation's by faith alone. It's one of the solas of the Reformation. Well, fide is the Latin term for faith. Fideism would be faithism. Now, ultimately, what fideism is, is circular reasoning. Again, remember my example where I said, if I claim that the Bible is true, and then I gave my evidence that the Bible's true because the Bible says it's true, that's circular reasoning. Well, that ends up being what presuppositionalism, they presuppose what they want to prove. It's circular reasoning. Now, fideism, again, is simply a term that means faithism. Fideism advocates a blind leap of faith without the need of any evidence. The problem is to correct any false notion of God, evidence must be supplied. Okay, so this is why fideism and ultimately presuppositional apologetics that R.C. Sproul rightly stood against is so problematic. All right, let me give you an example. Think about a boy who grows up in a Hindu culture. And remember, in Hinduism, they believe in what's called Brahman. Brahman is God. They're pantheists. They believe that all is God. But they also believe in the ten manifestations, that there are actually little gods that proceed from Brahman. One of them is Kali. So notice, think of a Hindu boy. He grows up in his culture. He presupposes that this god Kali is correct. He takes a blind leap of faith. He has no evidence for it. And he takes a blind leap of faith, says, yes, this Kali is true. And the presuppositionalist says, well, that's exactly what we are to do as Christians. We don't give any evidence. We simply take this blind leap of faith that Jesus Christ is true. Well, you can see quite clearly that we're in a, what you would call a Mexican standoff. How are you going to assert that Jesus Christ is true and not Kali? Well, you have to give evidence. And as soon as you've given evidence, you've just become one like R.C. Sproul and Bob DeWay, you've become a classical apologist. That's the problem with presuppositionalism. Dear ones, that's why R.C. Sproul saw it as a threat to Christianity and its claims. Not claiming that those who hold to it didn't love Christ and weren't believers. He was just saying that they were misguided and that they were making error 
in the reasoning process. Think about Einstein. People will say, well, good apologists and logicians like Cornelius Van Til would never perform the fallacy of circular reasoning. Well, Einstein divided by zero, okay? He was a pretty good mathematician, but he made some mistakes, didn't he? We all are prone to mistakes, and even brilliant men like Cornelius Van Til could make them. Okay, well, what this leads us to then is where is our starting point? How do we know what we know? How can we leave ourselves, as it were, and know God and his world? And what I want to share with you are four principles that are under attack in our postmodern world, but these are principles that we must understand, that we must defend, and that we must apply if we want to understand God and his world. Now, the four principles that I'm about to show you are found in R.C. Sproul's book, Defending the Faith. I highly recommend, if you have children especially, or co-workers or friends that you might have a Bible study with, this would be an excellent choice. Uh, remember, Deb, you and I did this years ago with some people in a Bible study. It's an excellent choice. Defending the Faith. R.C. Sproul gets into these four categories that I'm about to show you. So, this is our starting point. The four things I'm about to show you is, again, what is necessary to know God, his word, and his world. Let me begin with number one, the law of non-contradiction. The law of non-contradiction simply says, if A, then not non-A, at the same time and in the same relationship. Okay, so if you have a circle, it can't be non-circle, at the same time and in the same relationship. That's why you can't have a square circle because square is non-circle, a circle a circle. Are you with me? So without the law of non-contradiction, we can't distinguish between any categories. Again, we can't distinguish between Christ and Antichrist, heaven or hell, the door versus the wall. The law of non-contradiction is absolutely essential, and yet, dear ones, ever since Hegel... Georg Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel, the 18th century philosopher, this law of non-contradiction has been under attack. So much so that now if you go into seminaries within Christianity today, you'll have whole departments, either in theology or philosophy, that will say that the law of non-contradiction isn't necessarily binding. Dear ones, listen to me carefully. Without this, we have nothing but absurdity. You can't have any knowledge. And let me prove to you that the law of non-contradiction is immutable. First of all, when I say that the law of non-contradiction is immutable, some people will say, well, now you're placing it above God. No, I'm not. What I'm claiming is that God made the law of non-contradiction, and therefore it's immutable. Why is it immutable? Because in order to get rid of the law of non-contradiction, do you realize you have to use it? Think about it. You're in an argument with somebody who doesn't believe in the law of non-contradiction. And they say, I don't believe the law of non-contradiction exists. And you say to them, oh, I see, so you believe that it exists. They gave you A, you gave them non-A. Well, right away they're going to correct you. But notice they're using the law of non-contradiction to do so. The famous classical apologist Norman Geisler said, anytime you have to use something in order to disprove that it exists, you don't have a very good case. In order to get rid of the law of non-contradiction, you have to use it. And if you have to use something to prove that it doesn't exist, you don't have a good case. The law of non-contradiction cannot be gotten around. Let me give you another one. The law of causality. Every cause, excuse me, 
every effect must have a cause. That's the law of causality. And what this proves, and I'm going to show you in this cosmological argument that we're going to prove the existence of God in the next slide. What it shows is that at the end of the day, something must be eternal. Because out of nothing, nothing comes. That's all because of the law of causality. And the law of causality is just an offshoot from the law of non-contradiction. Now, anyone ever hear of a man named, I always goof his name, I say Stuart John, but it's John Stuart Mill. Anyone ever heard of that philosopher? John Stuart Mill was a famous philosopher from London in the 18th century. Well, he claimed that the law of causality was over. Okay, listen to what he said. Notice this equivocation. Listen to what Mill says. He says, quote, If everything must have a cause, well, then God must have a cause. Now, what's the problem with his reasoning there? Well, notice the law of cause and effect doesn't say that everything must have a cause. It says every effect must have a cause. Well, notice here's a world-class philosopher who sneaks in instead of every effect. He says everything. Well, if everything has to have a cause, yes, God is a thing. He exists. He would have to have a cause. But that's not the law of cause and effect. The law of cause and effect says that every effect must have a cause. At the end of the day, God is the uncaused causer. And even Aristotle realized that unless you had an eternal being who was an uncaused agent, you'd have nothing now. So realize that John Stuart Mill, who attacked that principle which is still used today to say that Christian claims of a God aren't valid, he made a fallacy. He made a bad argument. Okay, let me give you the third thing that we must know, the basic reliability of sense perception. Now, why would that be important? Well, I want you to think about the apostolic eyewitness. I'm going to show you that passage in a little bit. 1 John 1.1, that the way that the apostles knew the truths of Christ is because they felt him. They heard him. They saw him. They even ate with him. And this eyewitness was passed on to us. And so without the reliability of sense perception, we don't have the apostolic eyewitness. You and I can't understand things from the created order. We can't perceive things from the word of God. And yet the basic reliability of sense perception is under attack today and is considered not valid for knowledge in a postmodern generation but it must be defended. The fourth thing is the analogical use of language. I'll get into this. This gets somewhat technical. But dear ones, God has condescended to speak to us by way of analogy. When God says that he measured out the universe by the span of his hand, do you and I think that God actually used a hand to measure the heavens? Well, no. According to John 4.24, Jesus says that God is spirit and those who worship him worship in spirit and truth. But the the scripture uses analogical language. It's using an analogy so that we can understand something of God. Because God is so different than us, unless he uses analogy of things that we're aware of, we would have no idea what he's saying to us. So, for example, we see something of God's love, and we know something of love. Why? Because we love our children, and our children love us, and we love our wives, and our wives love their husbands, etc., etc. And so we know something of love. We, when it talks about the power of God, we know that there are some armies that are more powerful than other armies, and some car engines that are more powerful than other car engines, and so we know something of power. 
So God uses these things to speak to us about himself. He uses the analogical usage of language. Dear ones, all four of these are under attack. Now, my wife has got my Bible, but pretend this is my Bible. What you and I are going out into the postmodern world is we're going out saying, here's the Bible, and the postmodern world is attacking all four of these things, saying, you can't know your Bible. Your Bible's just a, a paperweight. You may have a Bible. They're not even telling you that it's wrong. They're just telling you you can't know it because the law of non-contradiction isn't valid. The law of causality isn't valid. The basic reliability of sense perception isn't valid. And the analogical usage of language isn't valid. You can't know your Bible. That's the argument of the postmodern world. And a man named R.C. Sproul from Ligonier Ministry said, I will stand on these things and I will die on these things because unless we have these things, we don't have our scriptures. And so that's why Bob and I want to do this work and get you into this language so that you can defend these things because this is where the battle is. When I was an airline pilot leaving the airline industry, I went into a seminary environment where they were denying all these things and I was just blown away. I remember the first words I heard from a postmodern theologian was you have to stop binary reductionism now. Well, binary means either or. And I thought, well, wait, in my airplane, my gear is either up or down, right? And I just, I thought there's a lot of either ors, right? Well, one of my either ors, by the way, is you either like Barry Manilow or you don't, right? <laughs> there's no soft way in between. It's either or. <laughs> but, but Bob DeWay came along and he showed me that this is where the battle is. And brothers and sisters, that's why I want to show you the works of R.C. Sproul, because if you read his works, he's going to help you defend these four items. So with that, let's begin. What we're going to do is we're going to take the first two, the law of non-contradiction and the law of causality, and we're going to put an argument that R.C. Sproul puts together to prove the existence of God. Oh, yes, we can prove the existence of God. Don't let anybody fool you. I oftentimes will even hear from well-meaning Christians, they'll say, well, any God that you can prove certainly isn't worth worshiping. And my response to that is, why is a God that you can't prove more worshipable? <laughs> Sorry, that's probably not even a word. Well, it's absurd. Where is the rule written that if you can prove God, he's not worth worshiping? Dear ones, you and I can prove the existence of God. Aristotle knew it. Aquinas knew it, Anselm knew it, B.B. Warfield knew it. What happened to our generation? Well, let's get to it. What I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a cosmological argument that you can use with your coworkers and your neighbors. This is something that you can take with you to a coffee shop. When it comes to the existence of the universe, it boils down to four possible categories. In any conceivable scenario that you could ever come up with for the origins of the universe will fall within one of these four categories. Okay, so let's begin with number one. First of all, perhaps we could say that the universe is an illusion, that you and I aren't really speaking here. We didn't really just have sloppy joes, that nothing really exists. Do you know that there's people who claim that? It's a small minority, but there's some that would claim that. There's even people who, who believe that we didn't walk on the moon, right? Well, anybody ever heard of Rene Descartes? Rene Descartes, the very f famous French philosopher, he worked on this issue because what Rene Descartes wanted was a sure foundation that he could stand on to know other things, namely God and his world. And so Rene Descartes 
went about on a process of doubting everything. He doubted his own existence. He doubted the existence of his wife. It probably wasn't a great marriage. He did, just doubted everything. But one day he came to the realization that if he kept doubting, he was doing something. Doubting is a form of thinking. And he finally realized that if I'm thinking, I'm doing something, and nothing can't do something, and therefore I've just proven my own existence by doubting. That's his very famous, I think, therefore I am. Everyone heard that? Well, he proved his own existence, and if you prove in some existence, you can determine then that the universe is not an illusion. All you have to prove is that one thing exists. It could be a grain of sand. And if a grain of sand exists, well, then not everything is an illusion. So clearly, we can scrub number one. If you're doubting that you exist, you're doing something, and nothing can't do something, you've just proven your own existence. Okay? Well, let's go to number two. The universe self-created itself. Now, what's the problem with that? Well, here's where we're going to pull out the first two that we just looked at in the previous slide, the law of non-contradiction and the law of causality. Think about it. The idea of self-creation is an absurdity because the universe would have to not exist and at the same time exist to put itself into existence. Well, that violates the law of non-contradiction and therefore it also violates the law of causality. Nothing can self-create itself. It is an absurdity. Now, Listen to me very carefully. What's very interesting about our deductions so far, when we just use the law of non-contradiction to say that the universe cannot create itself, we didn't come up just with a probable conclusion, but because we deduced it from a law of logic, we came up with a necessary conclusion. It's a necessary conclusion that nothing can create itself. It's not open for debate. It's a done deal. So now we're down just to two other options. Either the universe is eternal or there's an eternal being outside the universe, God. At the end of the day, something's eternal because self-creation is an absurdity. Now, let's look at premise number three. The universe is eternal. What's the problem with that? Well, the problem with that is the second law of thermodynamics. Now, realize when we're shifting from logic in premise two now to science in premise three, we're shifting from deduction to something called induction because we're looking at evidence. Now we don't have a necessary conclusion, but we can have a highly probable conclusion. Now why do I say that? Well, think about the second law of thermodynamics. It says that all energy in a closed system, the universe, is trending towards from higher order to lesser order. It's in decay. Meaning one day the stars will burn out, the sun will burn out. It means that we only have a finite supply of energy. So think about it. How could you have an infinite lifespan of a universe? Remember, it means it goes on forever with only a finite supply of energy, according to the second law of thermodynamics. So what that shows us is that the universe, the universe cannot be eternal. So if the universe cannot be eternal, what we've done is we've just eliminated the only three options apart from there being a God. Brothers and sisters, we can prove the existence of God. I remember I was in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. We had a maintenance problem in our airplane. And I shared this with a flight attendant. And you know what she said? I was so happy I thought she was going to come to faith right there. 
But you know what she did? She put her hands on her hips. She said, why have I never heard this before? <laughs> and what she was, she was suspicious. I've never heard this before. And right away it dawned me, yeah, because you live in a world full of postmoderns who've tried to deny the law of non-contradiction, the law of causality. They don't, when, when's the last time you talked about these things when you were in public school? I never did. Can you realize you can prove the existence of God and it's never taught in the public school? wonder why. But dear ones, we can prove the existence of God. So then if this were my Bible, what we do after that is we say, once I've proven God, well, has God revealed himself? And then we pull out the scriptures and we say, yes, this is the God who actually exists. That's the power of R.C. Sproul's argument, I think, is he began by proving the existence of God. Well, now, let me give you some preliminary conclusions. What we've just shown is even though the law of non-contradiction and the law of causality are under attack, they're valid, aren't they? And in fact, we can use them to prove the existence of God. But I want you to understand that also, remember our four big ones, the reliability of our sense perceptions and also the analogical usage of language are also under attack. And I want to talk about that. Let's talk about Immanuel Kant. How did the basic reliability of our sense perception come under attack? Okay, well, I want you to be aware of where it came from and how we can refute that. Now, when we talk about the third big one, the basic reliability of sense perception, realize the claim that we have as Christians is that our senses are reliable enough so that we can know things. Now, immediately, there'll be someone who will say, well, Eric... Can't we be deceived by our senses? Oh, yes. That's why it says the basic reliability of sense perception. So, for example, before the electron microscope, you know that there were diseases that we had no idea of. Why? Because we couldn't see them through our sense perception. But if some critic of our reliability of sense perception will say, well, see, that shows you really can't know, ask them, well, then how did we build the electron microscope? We did it by using our sense perception. And we became better and better at knowing our world, didn't we? Germans, without our sense perceptions, we can't know anything. And so we really do basically understand the world and God through our sense perceptions. They are reliable enough. But this came under attack through a philosopher named Immanuel Kant. What Immanuel Kant taught, and this is very important, this to me is the beginning of postmodernity, is he said two things. He said, number one, we don't have access to the noumenal world. Now, what's the noumenal world? It's just simply the world as it is, the real world. We don't have access to the real world. Why? Because he said we're so biased. We have such biases and presuppositions. And because of the imprecise nature of our sense perceptions, we can never really see the world as it is. And so instead, he said, we are locked away in what he called the phenomenal world, just the way the world appears. And this is the beginning of postmodernity. You can never speak as, you, as if you know something. You can never see the world really as it is. Now, this is the founder of the whole postmodern movement. All of the postmoderns that are out there saying, you can't know your Bible, they really come from Immanuel Kant. That's where their ideas come from. And the reason I say that is you have to realize that Immanuel Kant's argument is a self-refuting one. Why? Well, Kant's critique is self-refuting. Kant is making a claim about the real world while denying the ability to know the real world. Does everyone see that? 
What Emmanuel Kant is saying is the real world is such that you can't know the real world. Well, you're making a statement about it, buddy. He's just self-refuted himself. And that's the foundation of all of post-modernity. All of post-modernity hangs on a faulty presupposition, on circular reasoning, on a contradiction. That's the postmodern world. So you and I have to point that out to say, look, Immanuel Kant was wrong. He made a claim about the real world, and he claimed that he couldn't know the real world. That's a contradiction. And therefore, you and I have to say boldly to the postmodern world, I'm post-postmodern. I will not place the edifice of my knowledge upon a faulty presupposition of Immanuel Kant. Okay, now let's look at the basic reliability of sense perception. We see it in the scriptures. Notice here, 1 John 1, 1 through 3. Listen to what John says. Bob taught us very well through this book not long ago. John said this, What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, and the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Notice here an apostle, John, a personal spokesman for Jesus Christ is testifying to us based on the reliability of what? Sense perception. So the choice before us really then is are we going to go with Kant or are we going to go with Christ? Kant said you can't know Christ through your sense perception. Christ and his apostles say you can't. Well, I'm going with the one who was raised from the dead. Christ says you can know. But that's what's under attack today and now you know why. Immanuel Kant made a self-refuting argument that the way the real world is is that you can't know the real world. All right? But yet, the scriptures affirm that we can. Now, let's talk about an attack on language. Let me remind you, how do we know God? Well, we know him two ways. We know him through natural revelation. Natural revelation is, again, what we can know about God through the creation. And we can know some true things about God, but... The scriptures are very clear that natural revelation, when it mixes with sinful man, only gives us enough light to hang ourselves, to make us guilty before God. So what's ultimately required for salvation is special revelation. That's again why we see in Romans ten seventeen, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. All right? Now here's what I want you to think about. When it comes to the word of God, 20th century liberalism said our Bible was wrong. They would simply try to find contradictions in it. Well, then you and I, using the law of non-contradiction, just as Dana Birkinshaw did so uh, eloquently a few weeks ago, show that, no, there aren't any of these contradictions that you presuppose. And we defended the Bible, and we basically won that. But the battle in the 21st century isn't that typically people are saying your Bible is wrong. What the postmodern generation is saying is that you can't know your Bible. See, so what we keep doing is we keep defending our Bible and we're fighting the 20th century battle. But the 21st century battle is over the law of non-contradiction, the law of causality, the reliability of sense perception, and the analogical usage of language because without those things, we can't know our Bible. 
And again, it's just a paperweight, an emblem on our desk. That's where the debate is. And so, dear ones, that's why you and I have to show the validity of those four things that we're studying. Okay, now, let's talk about this attack on language. The postmodern claim is that because God does not speak to us univocally, we can know nothing of God. The claim is that because God is so other and he doesn't have a God language that he can directly communicate to us in, all language about God is just mere equivocation. That we can't know anything of God through language. Now, the response to this is that there's actually a third alternative. The postmoderns say, well, because God doesn't speak univocally to you, all speech is equivocation. But what we are saying is, no, there's a third alternative, that God speaks to us not univocally and not equivocally, but analogically. God speaks analogically through the scripture so that we can know true things about him and his world. Now, let me give you some examples of what I mean by univocal and all these different things. Univocal, what does that mean? Well, that would be language where you have a one-to-one direct correspondence with words. Let me give you a very simple example. If I said to you that that dessert that you fixed the other night was very tasty, and then I said, well, you know, that pizza over there was very tasty. Notice that I'm using tasty with a one-to-one direct correspondence. I'm not equivocating. There's one food that my palate found tasty, and there's another food that my palate found tasty. That would be univocal. But let me show you why we can't say that God speaks to us univocally. What if God said that there was a wookalar? Now, by the way, there is no such thing as a wookalar. I took that from a Don Knotts movie. Uh, shows you where my mindset is. But let's just say there was a wookalar, and God started speaking of a wookalar in heaven. Well, you and I have no contact point with a wookalar. We have no idea what that is. So he could talk about wookalars and all these things, and we'd have no earthly idea what he's talking about. There would be no correspondence. We wouldn't understand. And so that's why what God uses isn't a univocal language, but analogical language. Okay, so that's univocal. There's a one-to-one correspondence. But let me show you the alternative that the postmoderns claim that we have. Because God doesn't speak univocally, they claim that all he does is speak equivocally to us. Now, what's equivocation? Let me give you an example. I use this all, all the time, so I know it's probably boring. But if I told my son, Will, I said, Will, put a jacket on. It's cool outside. And he says, Dad, it's okay. I'm a cool cat. (laughs) Well, notice he equivocated on cool. I used it in the sense of temperature. He was using it in the sense of hipness. That's equivocation. And what the postmoderns are saying is because God can't speak univocally, all he does is equivocates. And therefore, we can't know anything from our Bibles. But what Bob and I are saying and what R.C. Sproul has been saying, God bless him, was that God does speak to us and he does it analogically. Analogically, here's my definition. I was struggling with trying to put it on the screen. It's words that convey meaning by using readily understood examples. Here's one example that I wrote down in my notes. Psalm 102.25, God creates the heavens with his hands. I used this earlier. When God creates the heavens with his hands, do you and I think that God is a man? Well, of course, Jesus is. Truly God, truly man. But God is spirit, doesn't have hands. But that's the analogical usage of language. God is using something that we understand to convey ideas 
that he did really create all things. When it says that God changed his mind, that's called an anthropomorphism. Human beings change their mind, but God uses it to demonstrate that he had a change of disposition that he had preordained towards another human being. Okay, So God litters his language with examples that you and I know from the world. Again, we know something of love. We know something of hate. We know something of all these things because we see examples or analogies of them in our world. And so that's how God conveys to us through the analogical usage of language. So here's the point. When the postmoderns try to take your Bible away by saying God cannot convey through language, what they're really doing is they're putting you in a dilemma where they say either God speaks univocally or he speaks equivocally. But you and I are saying, no, we cut the Gordian knot. He's actually speaking to us through a third option called analogically. God can speak to us, and he does. And now let me give you an example of this. We can know God through language. John 12, 48. By the way, I have to just tell a quick story. I'm at seminary. I'm just surrounded by postmoderns. I think I'm going crazy. I can't take it anymore. Every class I go into, nobody can know anything. All I want to do is study my Bible. And we can't know, we can't know, we can't know. And all of a sudden, I hear Bob DeWay come. And Bob DeWay kicks down their door, takes all their arguments, shreds them, puts John twelve forty eight on the screen, and says, if we can't know, then what is Jesus talking about here? And I love you for that, Bob. I, uh, it meant a lot to me. It really did. It's hard thinking you're crazy for a long period of time, you know. <laughs> it meant a lot. But listen to what Jesus said. John twelve forty eight. Jesus says, He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him on the last day. Notice Jesus is saying that his very words will be our judge. Well, how can that be true if the postmoderns are right that God only equivocates with us? If we can't really know God through language. And so the question is, is it Kant who said you can't know? Or is it Christ who said you can? Choose this day, O church, whom you will serve. It's either Kant or it's Christ. Kant says you can't know your Bible. Christ says you can't. In fact, you must because you're going to be judged according to it. Listen to 1 John 5.13. John says, these things I have written to you. Oh, stop there, Immanuel Kant. Stop there, Stanley Grenz and all you postmodern theologians. The apostle of Jesus Christ is saying that he wrote to us? Didn't he know that God can't speak to us through language? Well, obviously they didn't get the memo. The apostle assumes that you can. He says, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Here's the purpose, so that you may know. Notice we can have knowledge. Contrary to the postmoderns, you may know that you have eternal life. Brothers and sisters, is it Kant or is it Christ? That's the debate. That's what R.C. Sproul understood. Is it Kant or is it Christ? And if we lose on these four items, if the church loses it, it says it's Kant. But if you and I win on these things and defend these things, understand these things, utilize these things, we can say it's Christ, and we must. Dear brothers and sisters, that was the genius of R.C. Sproul. 
just like our Bob Dway who kicked down the doors, took their arguments, shredded them, and showed the world the truth, R.C. Sproul did that as well. And we're a blessed people for his life and for his ministry. Brothers and sisters, that's where the battle is for the postmodern world. These are the categories we must understand and win on so that we can pull out our Bibles and show them, yes, we do know. We do know God from the scriptures. Okay, with that, I'm sorry I threw so much at you, but I wanted to get that out there. That was, in, in my opinion, contending for the faith Sproul style. I wanted to honor him. Now, I want to, um, at this point, stop for any questions, comments, and I also want Bob to, Bob has so much to say on these issues. Um, is there anything you want to add, Bob? Or Well, I'll just say the reason this was of such great interest to me is that I grew up in a liberal church that had been influenced by rationalism. Yeah. And were, they were trying to save religion by disconnecting it from the claims of the Bible. Right. And so ordained ministers told me that even though to join the church at 12, you're supposed to swear you believe things. Yeah. In reality, they said, there are no miracles. Jesus didn't walk on water. Uh, you don't have to believe those things. So I had doubts, and I went and asked. Right. So I left the church and went to the golf course. Right. <laughs> and uh, when I was sitting in Iowa State University studying um, science, chemistry, and I was a chemical engineering student, I came across the evidence that an intelligent creator had to have created the world out of nothing. Wow. And I did study entropy. We had to include right. it in our equations for doing... Natural revelation. Yeah. The yeah. conservation of energy right. is supposed to work because you have the same thing on both sides of an equation. Equation, right. But you got to put entropy in there because you lose some. Right. So I knew that. And the heme molecules, what led me to believe in a creator because this wow. professor put this whole big molecule up on a chalkboard. Hmm. This was in 1971 in March. And there was iron and then carbon-carbon bonding. And, other, and he put this complicated molecule. Yeah. And he turned around and said, if one of these electronic bonds was different, we'd all be dead because this thing would not carry oxygen. Wow to the cells for human metabolism. And here I sat, having been told by ordained ministers there are no miracles in the Bible's not true. He didn't make any religious claims. He just told us that. Yeah. And I said, God created this. Wow. This is intelligent design. Wow. There's not enough billions and billions of years for this accident to happen. Right. That life is as it is. Uh, that was in March. By, in July, I came to know Jesus Christ. Amen. Wow. As, as Lord and Savior. And that fall, I went back. I, I found some of my old seminary papers. I told the story. Yeah. I went back to continue as a junior, and I was ahead on my credits. And I had a class on philosophy of science. So I sat through the first lecture, and Evidently, I don't know how this came about, but the guy claimed that we couldn't know that anything is true. Mm. We can only 
have theories and ideas, and then we just choose what works best in the universe we're in. Oh boy! But he did—he used all those t highly technical terms. Yeah. So I raised my hand. I was a brand new Christian. I raised my hand. So I said, "Professor, I want to make sure I don't misunderstand you. You're saying it's impossible for us to know if anything's true." He used the term "true," truth with a capital T. He says, "That's what I'm claiming." Of course, he's claiming to know that. Exactly true. right. That's a true. And I said, okay. And the, the students gasped. I wasn't surprised. All the other students said, what? Why are, why are we? You know, it costs a lot of money to know yeah. that nothing is true. <laughs> Pay your tuition. <laughs> Within a few weeks, I was in Bible college studying theology. I went, turned in. I left. There was, there's more to the story. And I went to study theology. Wow. Because... I was so motivated to know the truth, and God has spoken the truth that claims that in the Bible. Amen. Wow. Thanks, Bob. Yeah. Well said. Well said. Anybody else have any questions or comments? Yeah, Dana. We'll, we'll get it on tape here. <laughs> that way, anything said can be held against you or whatever this is in the court of law. How do postmodern professors grade exams? Because, because the student can say, you can't know whether what I wrote on that paper is true. Exactly. <laughs> Very good point, Dana. You know, it's funny you say I that. I asked that once. You know what they say? For the purpose of the grade, we'll go by my truth. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah that's clever. You know, it's funny um, you say that, Dana. I know Dana went to seminary as well. Did you go to, was it Bethel you went to as well? Or? I went to Fort, I mean, the seminary. Okay. Well, I remember I was given an assignment once, and this assignment was about how it was a whole book that we had to read by Stanley Grenz, who's a postmodern theologian. I use the term theologian loosely. But he talked about how the reader defines the meaning of the text. Well, I had to write a paper on that. Well, I wrote in my paper that he believes that the author defines the meaning of the text. And the reason I wrote that is because if the reader defines the meaning, I can make it mean whatever I want. And so the professor had to say, touche, and he had to give me an A. What's he going to say? But that's the absurdity of the postmodern. So think about our constitution in, in America. You have a left-wing Marxist movement that says we'll interpret it the only any way we want. The reader defines the meaning, not the author. Now, think about my wife. She wrote a grocery list to me. She said, go get milk, eggs, and bread. And I come back a few hours later with a candy and a six-pack and a bunch of brownies and donuts. And I said, well, that's just... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Other than the six-pack. I just threw that in there for effect. But she, she, would, she was the author of the, the note. She grounded the meaning of it. She wouldn't let me get away with that. Now, that's a smaller example, but that's exactly the way it is with the Scriptures. God is the ultimate author of Scripture. He grounds the meaning. In fact, that's the point that Peter, the apostle, makes in Second Peter 1, that God is actually grounded as the author the meaning of the text. And so that's one thing that Bob has really stood for, and I thank you, Bob, and R.C. Sproul, is for authorial intent, that the author defines the meaning of the text of Scripture, not the reader. So that's uh, another postmodern issue. Any other things? Yeah, Peter. Yeah, I uh, had or one thought on that. I was just kind of, it kind of stemmed off of the John verse where it says, these things which we have seen, heard, and touched, and it says, we tell you so that you may have fellowship with God. And, you know, I just kind of going along with the, how, how do we get to know God? Yeah. And first, you know, I, I really took the Bible apart from God. I'll just share, kind of share a little bit of my own testimony ongoing, yeah. obviously. 
But, um, and, uh, and I, uh, when I'd be tempted, I'd think, okay, well, my mind is really wants to do something, so I'm gonna open the Bible and get rid of this temptation. The Bible, you know, it's, it does sanctify us, but it's not the Bible's power. I was looking to it like as if I was going to be, you know, it was going to overcome the temptation. I wasn't praying to God or looking to God. I was just like reading it like this is some divine magical, this is going to help me, you know, and it does. But then I, and then I went the other way, which you can probably kind of guess just by my talking, which was I, I was like, okay, so the Bible doesn't do everything, so I'm going to go and just seek after God in other ways. And then I found myself in another dilemma because I was like, well, well I, I don't, can't remember a good way to explain it, but it's like, wow, I, I need this spiritual food. I need the Bible. Is, I need that to constantly fight against the devil's attacks. And, you know, how to, what God said, I need to remember that, and I need to be in it constantly. But anyways, yeah, just uh, kind of the... Uh, both ideas and the idea of fellowship like how do we yeah i don't know it, it i kind of want to just uh, remember that it's like it's really about how do we seek god is you know understand him and know him yeah yeah eric let me just share something with you um think about not long ago we we had gone in that passage in romans 12 2 where paul says do not be conformed to the image of this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind and that's one of the things, the ways in which the Bible sanctifies us is by enabling us to think differently. Um, as a man thinks in his heart, remember the heart wasn't the emotion, it was the center of the person, both our thought and our affection. As a man thinks in his heart, so he is. And so that's really the battle. The battle for living a godly life is a battle to believe the promises of God. Because if I believe the promises of God, I'm going to live for him and his kingdom rather than the fleeting pleasures of sin in this world. And so that's what the Bible does. The power of the Bible is that it changes how we think, but it can only change how we think if we can know what it says. And so that's the problem with postmodernity is they try to take our understanding away. And then what you do is you just, again, the Bible turns into kind of like you pointed out, almost like a magical tool. It's a paperweight. It's an emblem. It's symbolic but it can't transform lives. In order for the Bible to transform you, it has to transform the way you think. We have to think differently. That's why we as Christians are different. It's not because we're inherently better persons. We have a sin nature still, even the side of glory. But the reason we're different is because we're the ones who think differently. And we have the spirit within us who obviously enables us to do that which is pleasing to God. Yeah, I'm sorry, Peter. Yep, Eric, I've got a num- number of questions and comments. I guess, um, is Kant really saying we can't know the truth? Is that what you mean by statement one there? Yeah, um, exactly. Yep. We don't have access to the... The world nom- as it is. Yep. Yeah. Yep. He's saying we can't know the truth, right? Exactly. So what he's saying is that you don't have access to the world as it is yeah. because of your limited sense perceptions. You have only access to the world as it appears to you. And that's what leads to postmodernity. Well, it's true for you. That's true for you. No one has access to the truth, the real world as it is. But the interesting thing, again, is Kant's claim is a self-refuting argument. Again, he's saying the way the real world is is such that you can't know the real world. Well, his statement is about the real world. And if he can't know anything about the real world, then how is he making statements about it? You know, it's funny. I don't know. Um, you know, you, you look at writings and you look at how Hume um, interacted and Hegel. Hegel, by the way, was really, Kant was kind of his grandfather um, philosophically. And Hegel is where we end up getting Marxism. Marxism is the materialized form of Hegel. 
in spiritual evolution. And Hegel believed that all contradictions through history would one day be nullified, that they would basically, um, contradiction would be done away with. It would all resolve itself in the end. So, for example, Hegel thinks the cross is not something that happens historically where Christ dies, but he sees it as a way of God resolving contradiction. You have a living Christ who dies and then lives again. And so this, live, this death and living again is a contradiction that God resolves through history. Well, you and I say, well, no, this happened historically, that Jesus Christ died for my sins as a substitutionary atonement. It's not God drawing all things into himself, just resolving the law of non-contradiction. So you might ask yourself, well, where does Hegel get that? Well, Hegel is a student of Kant who says you can't know truth. Well, if you can't know truth, you can't know history, and therefore you can't even know if the claims of Christianity are true. So what Hegel does is he lives in a world where you presuppose you can't even know the truth claims of Christianity. So he basically makes up in his mind a version where God is in all things, drawing all things to himself. And and that's what Marx ends up uh, believing. He materializes it, and that's why you have Marxism today. So, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, Peter. To follow up then. So if we can't know the truth, we can't even know ourselves? Yeah, very well said. Yeah, you wouldn't be able to know anything truly. Okay, and so basically these people that aspire to this are deconstructionists? Yeah, exactly right. Um, Deconstructions typically in language... They'll, they'll deconstruct language and say that you can't, um, and they typically do that by asserting that the reader defines the meaning rather than the author. Yep. Okay, and then just lastly here, when we were talking a little bit about unbelievers yeah. and the fact that through a natural revelation they have yep. knowledge of God and they suppress it. Yes. So if we believe in election... Why should we be concerned other than to preach the word? I agree. Um, My point in bringing that up was that those in the presuppositionalist camp claim that unless you are a believer in Christ, you can't have true knowledge of God. So here's the mistake that they're making. What they're not understanding is that Paul in Romans 1, 20 through 21, is claiming that the unbeliever's issue is not that they don't have true knowledge. Paul affirms in the scriptures clearly that the unbeliever does. The problem with the unbeliever is they take the the true knowledge of God and they suppress it because they don't like it. So here's two categories that you want to keep in your mind. When we talk about the inability of the sinner, we're not talking about natural inability, although there is some of that. Sin does affect our minds. But we're talking more about moral inability. So the reason why we need regeneration isn't because I can't understand what the preacher is saying to me. It's because I don't like what he's saying to me. I like my deeds of darkness. I like my sin. And so that's the distinction that I don't think Cornelius Van Til, I think he knows it theologically, but he's not allowing it in his philosophy, that we have to affirm that even the unregenerate can know true things. And uh, therefore, it's not a valid presupposition to say that they can't know anything without presupposing God. They do. So the Holy Exactly. So what the Holy Spirit does is he takes that that moral bent that we have against God and all of a sudden he makes him sweet to us. And so we go from we go from I hate the things of God to I want the things of God. I hate Christ, I want Christ. I don't think I'm a sinner, I know I'm a sinner. I don't think there's a hell, I know. I mean, it's it's a moral issue. And so that's moral inability. And that's one of the reasons remember when we were in Romans 10 
And do you remember Paul cites from Deuteronomy 30? He says, has God asked you to ascend into the heavens, that is to bring Christ down? Or to go down into Sheol, that is to bring Christ up? The reason Paul is citing that is he's showing us that God had not asked the impossible. It's not impossible. God just simply asks us to believe. So it's not naturally impossible, but it's morally impossible. The reason people don't want to believe the spoken word through the apostles and prophets isn't because they don't understand it. It's not that kind of impossibility. It's because they don't like it. They're morally opposed to it. Yep. So you're right. That's where regeneration comes in. Our disposition and our will is regenerated by the Spirit to believe. Yep. So, yeah, I'm sorry, Julie. Well, I just wanted to comment. There's a guy, like, his name is Jordan Peterson. He's a psychologist and professor from the University of Toronto. Okay. And he first came into the public eye kind of at the end of, I think it was 2016, because they had this Bill C-16 that they were trying to pass in Canada, um, making people use gender pronouns. So there's, like, 75 of them. Okay. And he's studied communism and, um, you know, Hitler and Stalin and the gulag for... 20 years of his life and wrote a book about the whole thing and about the evil is within us, you know? Yeah. So anyway, he um, said, I won't, I won't use those pronouns. You can't um, legislate me to speak a certain way. Right. So he now is, um, he's not a Christian, but it's interesting because he's doing these biblical lectures like all around the whole country. Yeah. And he's packing it out with these young people and atheists and stuff Oh, wow. because he's, he's talking about the Bible from a psychological significance, mm. which is interesting because there's so many layers to the Bible. So yeah. he's not a Christian yet, but he's, I think God's working on him. But oh, anyway, yeah. he, he rails against postmodernism all the time. And he said, he goes, well, I'll give the postmodernists this. There's, there are infinite numbers of ways to perceive reality, but he said there's only where they get it wrong is there's only a small amount of, ways to perceive reality that are that are real and possible well know? said so yeah you know and that's a helpful that's a good category at the end to, to leave on um, one thing that bob and i have kind of worked on and we try to do this in our radio program is what we have to realize is there's um different theories of truth and i want you to realize let's just take two categories the postmodern generation believes in what's called coherentism and what that is it's a socially constructed reality where something is true if the room agrees on it, so to speak. Okay? So, for example, you see this in politics. One example is where, do you remember the narrative, if you like your doctor, you can keep your doctor. If you like your plan, you can keep your plan. That was stated over and over. It had no connection to reality, but you just keep saying it. And so if all everyone agrees upon that, it becomes true. What we're saying as evangelicals isn't called coherentism. What we believe is in something called the correspondence theory of truth. And what that is, is if I make a propositional statement that I have keys in my pocket, whoops, sorry, and I pull out of my pocket keys, my statement was true because it corresponded to reality. Okay? Now, what did Immanuel Kant say tonight? He said, you don't have access to reality. So that's why the postmodern says it's ridiculous talking about the correspondence theory of truth. You don't have access to reality. So, again, postmoderns say something is true if we all agree upon it. Well, what we're saying is, no, something is true if it corresponds to reality. um, How would you like an airline pilot who takes a a straw vote in the back and says, what speed would you like to fly the airplane at? 
or should we use flaps 5 or flaps 15? Or five? I mean, no, you want the guy to make the decision based on reality. He understands how the aircraft works. So, um, and one of my favorite examples, Bob talks about the postmodern mushroom hunt. Um, you'll have to give that story another time um, if you want. But anyway, so yeah, we believe the correspondence theory of truth. Postmoderns are saying coherentism. So we have to understand that distinction in the model of truth. Yeah, thanks, Julie. Yeah, well, I tell you what, um, if you have any more comments, questions, I'll be around all week. I'll be there Sunday, and we can talk more and chat. But um, God bless you. I really hope, um, by the way, if you want to look at some of the books of R.C. Sproul, I have just a, a four of them up here. I've got a lot more at home, but Will could only carry so many. I know Bob has got quite a few. But R.C. Sproul, you would do well to read any of his books. One book that I would highly commend if you're dealing with anybody with atheism is this is R.C. Sproul's cosmological argument where he proves the existence of God and he actually refutes quantum physics being used to try to prove that nothing can do something. Sometimes philosophers will use quantum physics to try to prove that. It's called Not a Chance, excellent read. There's a great book called The Consequences of Ideas that will get you into touch with all the philosophers and how those ideas of the philosophers influence the the modern, the postmodern world. Defending the faith, remember the big four that I have on the screen? R.C. Sproul gets into great detail on those four items. And then you have classical apologetics, rational defense of the Christian faith, but also a critique of presuppositional apologetics. So those are four works that I highly recommend. But with that, let me pray and we'll, we'll get out of here tonight. Lord, we thank you so much for our time together. I do pray, Heavenly Father, for my brothers and sisters that you would help us to think well um, in our ministries and in your word, that we may help a confused and dying postmodern world understand the truth claims from the scripture so that they may have life. I pray, Lord, that you give us boldness and opportunity to proclaim Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation. I pray, Lord, for my brothers and sisters' protection as they go. We thank you for our night. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.